There's this thing I do every once in a while when I'm procrastinating or I'm feeling a bit nostalgic. I'll log into like places like eBay or go on Reddit and I'll search quote-unquote Lebanon. I'm Lebanese and I'm living in Los Angeles now, so sometimes I just want to see what comes up. And mostly it's old pictures or sometimes they're trinkets like stamps or old coins. But sometimes I'll land on something that just makes me so happy because it'll instantly transport me into this moment in my childhood. And in this case, um, this one time, I found a link to a vinyl record of this song. Do you love me? Do you, do you? Do you need me? Do you, do you? Do you want me? Do you, do you? And I'm willing to bet that anyone who grew up in the Middle East, and maybe particularly the Levant, in the last few decades definitely knows this song. Maybe you haven't heard it in years like me, but there it is, buried among your childhood memories. Do you need me? Do you want me? And growing up, I personally remember thinking that it was a little bit of a joke, you know, like Lebanese trying to sing in English, a language maybe they didn't speak so well. There was an accent to the singing. They were trying maybe to be a little bit more Western. But when I listened as an adult, I had this new appreciation, actually, for what the band was trying to do. When I go I can It's a trying to merge some Western lyrics to Arabic sounds, trying to expand their reach. Musicians do that all the time these days. But back then, in the 1970s, it was totally ahead of its time. And although I only knew one of their songs, the Bendeley family, they'd released several albums. So I started going through more of their songs, and I had a ton of questions. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm This is Roger Bandele. He's one of the main members of the group, and I actually reached him on WhatsApp from his home in Tripoli. This was all at the height of COVID, so we couldn't meet in person. He started telling me about how the Bandele family had grown up around music. His dad was a composer and his mom was a singer. And together they'd play songs to each other, and Roger and his 11 siblings, they would all listen to their parents in admiration. Then, one Mother's Day, Roger had the idea to compose a song for his mom. So he assigned each one of his siblings a different instrument, drums, guitar, oud, and they performed it. His dad was actually so surprised at how good they were, and had the thought that maybe, maybe they had potential. So they started practicing together, and by chance, they were featured on a local news broadcast one night. And the way he describes it, the media loved the bands because they were so unique at the time. This group of siblings between the ages of 9 and 24 all performing together. (laughs) 
The press had compared them to the Osmans or the Beatles, and they started getting offers to play at theaters in Beirut. Their first show was in February of 1975 at a theater in Clemenceau. He said that they performed a three-month residency there in front of huge crowds. But then the Lebanese civil war started getting worse, and Beirut became more dangerous, and they had to move back up into their family home in Tripoli. And they stopped performing. Like so many Lebanese at the time, their dreams were crushed. A friend of their dad's suggested that maybe they move to Syria instead, where it was safer and where they could carry on performing their music. So they downsized the band to two or three members and moved to Syria, where they launched into this new phase of their careers, performing in theaters all around the Middle East, in places like Jordan and Iraq, sometimes playing to audiences of 2,000 people a night, which was huge for them. And in Kuwait, in 1978, they filmed the video for maybe their most famous song ever, Do You Love Me? In the video, you see the eight members of the Bandali family wearing distinctively 1970s outfits, button-up shirts, high-waisted trousers, belts with these big buckles. The song became one of their biggest hits, although Roger told me that they didn't really expect it to be that way. He said our happiness and talent was like the glue that bound us together. And the song was totally spontaneous. It wasn't aimed at making a lot of money. We just wanted to try something new. For most of the 1970s and 80s, the band was a household name across many countries in the Middle East. And then, at a time that felt like the height of their career, their father died. And not long after that, their mother died too. And after that, the Bendeli family didn't perform as a band anymore. When we lost our father, he was like the backbone of our family. Then we lost our mother, and it was hard because we used to share everything as siblings. But the hardest part for me was when the family separated. It was hard for all of us because our closeness is what inspired all of our work. Over the next couple of decades, the song almost disappeared. But then it popped up on this thing called YouTube in 2007. And in 2019, it was sampled in a famous song by Troboy. And that song was even used in one of Rihanna's fashion shows. Last year, René Bandali, one of the singers in the band, passed away. And in one of their last performances together, the group sang Do You Love Me on a Lebanese TV show. Do you want me? In the video, they're all much older. They've lost those 70s outfits and the big hair. But you can tell they're enjoying themselves just as much as they did at the height of their success. Dene Bandali stands up and walks around the room, smiling and singing with each of his band members in turn. Do you need me? Today, we have two stories of songs that have been lost and found in different ways. I'm Dana Balut, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. 
And one story that always kind of captures my imagination the streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Our first story starts with Jana Sturz. He's a German DJ and a record producer who runs this company called Habibi Funk, which reissues old or sometimes forgotten records out of the MENA region, the Middle East or North Africa. And he's particular about that word reissue because when he first started Habibi Funk, he was using the word discover, like he was discovering this music for the first time, until this one conversation he had with a friend. This friend of mine told me, yeah, well, you are working and using the word discovered kind of is a bit reminiscent of Christoph Columbus discovering uh, Latin America. Uh, <laughs> so um, that is actually one of the things that where I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. Let me try to not use that word anymore. And this whole project, Habibi Funk, started for him with one man, Bob Fadul. I was really just randomly walking through the city of Casablanca and I was somewhere close to one of the entrances to the Medina and it was like a, a neighborhood where you had a lot of like small shops, people repairing stuff, fruit vendors, small fish market. This was in 2013 and he was managing another musician who was passing through Morocco on a tour. And in one of the side streets, I saw a shop that from the outside looking in appeared to be repairing broken electronics from radios to CD players. And they were all stacked on on top uh, of one another. Uh, And then I saw that behind all of these electronics, there was records. So I went into the shop. The guy was kind of confused what I wanted, as I was clearly not interested in any of the electronics he was selling. And he kind of kicked me out immediately. But then the next day, Giannis was walking around the same area of town. This guy came up to him trying to sell him a guided tour of the city. He was around the same age as the shopkeeper. And I was like, no, I don't really want to tour, but come along. Maybe you can explain him why I'm interested in the records and everything. And he did, and it actually worked. Um, and I was allowed to to browse through the records, which I guess at this point nobody really had looked at in a long time. It turned out the shop owner used to have a record label and a distribution company in the 1970s. And as business died out, he switched to selling electronics. But he still had all these old records in the back of the shop. And one of the records I, I found there and I bought was by Fadul. And at this point, I didn't have a portable record player with me, so I had to wait until I was back home in Germany. And it kind of was what I expected, just much better. Like a Moroccan adaptation of James Brown's Papa Got a Brand New Bag. But with different lyrics, um, Fadul made it into a song where he kind of deals with trying to not get high and not trying to drink anymore. And at the same time, played with like a very, very wild energy. 
Yanis told us that at the time, James Brown, he was a huge hit anywhere in the world. So I'm sure there is a band in Thailand, there is a band in Russia, there's a band in South Africa, there's a band in Chile that all made songs that were influenced by James Brown. For example, there's an Egyptian band called The Cats, and they also did a James Brown cover. But most of these James Brown imitations, they were not good. They were just straight-up rip-offs. And I think what made Fadul stand out to me is the fact that he very much took an influence but then made the track his own. It manages to translate an energy level that you often that you rarely find. So I kind of I think at one point I wrote that it kind of feels like funk music played with a punk rock attitude, which I still feel describes it very adequately. There was something special about Fadur, something Yanis hadn't really heard before. And he had this idea. Maybe if I find out what happened to this guy, I can ask for his permission and reissue his record. Um, so we started looking, asking around for him, asking at the old record shops. He was in touch with all these Moroccan musicians who'd played in bands around the same time as Fadul. And a lot of them remembered him, but no one really knew what happened to him. And then literally went into like the neighborhood coffee shops with a photo of the cover and started asking people whether they remember the guy. He found someone who knew his parents, but his parents had passed. And then he tried to find his brother and that didn't really work. But then he found someone who said, you know, I think you need to try this guy called Tony Day. He's a security guard in Germany now, but I think they were friends and he might be able to tell you more about Fadul. So Yanis tracked him down and got him on the phone and started telling him about this idea to try and reissue Fadul's record. But Tony had the hard job of breaking Yanis's heart a little bit and telling him the bad news. Fadul had died, actually, in 1991. With the news of Fadul's passing, Yanis wanted to find an ex of kin to kind of ask for permission and to work out a deal for reissuing his record. So he finally got the contact details of Fadul's sister, who lived in Casablanca. And she actually was happy to sit down with him and tell him as much as she knew about her brother. She later told us that when she heard that there was like some young people from Europe asking about her brother, she was like, oh, shit. he got someone pregnant. It's his kids. They are looking for their dad. Now I have to tell him that his dad is not alive anymore. <laughs> and she said she was very relieved when she realized we're there for the music and not, not looking for our father. His family gave Yanis permission to publish the reissue of Fadul's music, and they'd split the profits between the family members. But before that, Yanis had to find out as much as he could about Fadul's life, especially if he was going to do his record justice. I assume Bob Fadul is not his actual name. <laughs> no, uh, no, no. That, I guess, was a nod to Bob Marley, I can only assume. At the time Bob Fadul was getting into playing music in the late 60s and 70s, kind of around the same time the Benderis in Lebanon were rising to fame, Morocco was going through this kind of specific cultural moments. Famous rock stars from the US and the UK 
People like Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, they all visited Casablanca, Tangier, Marrakesh to write music. And today still, in the village of Suwadia on the west coast of Morocco, there's a Jimi Hendrix cafe and murals of him on walls around the village. So when rock and roll music started spilling over through records brought back from Europe and America by family members or small record store owners, and through these famous bands themselves coming to visit Morocco to look for inspiration, something struck a chord with a lot of young people. And they started forming bands of their own. This is Nordin Abouda. He used to play with Fadoul as a guitarist in his band. And he told us that at the weekend, groups of young people would host these parties when their parents were out. Quite typical. <laughs> everyone would bring their favorite records, and sometimes bands would play, and everyone would be dancing. And at one of these parties, Nordin met this guy named Bob. This was 1970-1971 and they were both playing at one of these parties and they were actually introduced by Tony Day, that guy, the security guard who lives in Germany. By this point, Nordin says Fadoul was pretty popular. Uh, he told us that at any club or party that he was at, they'd be playing his music. <laughs> He was like the Moroccan James Brown. His lyrics were amazing and he had a sense of humor. And after being introduced at that party, he kind of looked at him and said, Hey man, want to record an album together? They showed up at the cinema, not even a recording studio, to record their first album. He says that they didn't sound check, didn't adjust anything, and they just recorded their first take and printed the album to vinyl just like we do at Kerning Cultures. It was a horrible recording, he said. He told us that he gave the first copy of the album to his grandmother. And when his parents heard it, they were not pleased. But this recording was the one that Giannis found a version of at the back of the record shop in Casablanca all those years. It's the only recorded music Giannis has ever been able to find from Bob Fadoul. And he remains this elusive character. Even his family doesn't know much about him. I mean, what, his family, I don't think, was so much part of his artistic life. Um, they knew like some of the bigger headlines. So apart from being a singer, he also played theater. He used to paint. Even though no of his, I've never seen any of his paintings. And funny enough, he also worked as a circus clown. Um, so he lived in the Netherlands for three years as a circus clown. The last time Nordin saw Fadoul was decades ago. They stopped being in touch after Nordin moved to France in the 1980s. No, 
trop sur la musique. Celui, c'était. Ah oui, oui, c'était un passionné, c'était un passionné. Ah oui, oui, oui. He's saying that Fadoul would come and see him often. And they talk about music. He was really passionate about it. So it hurt him a lot the day Fadoul died. Tony Day was the one who told him that Fadoul had passed and he couldn't believe it. Et c'est lui qui m'a dit Fadoul est mort. Je dis c'est pas possible. Ça m'a fait mal au cœur parce qu'il était gentil garçon. It broke his heart because he says he was such a nice man. Someone in Morocco told me Fadoul is more famous now than he was while he was still alive in Morocco, which might very well be true. Which makes it even more a pity that he's not here anymore to witness the second coming of his music. If you're wondering, Yanis splits the royalties with his artist or their next of kin 50-50. And in Fadoul's case, his brother and sister are saving that money for Fadoul's children. Et du coup, euh, ça a été quoi votre réaction quand, euh, quand vous avez vu la, la réédition de l'album de, de Harry Funk sur Fatdoul Oui, moi j'ai dit c'est, c'est super, c'est magnifique. Ouais, c'est moi je ne savais pas qu'il était mort, je ne savais pas qu'il était mort. D'accord. Dis bon, ça va peut-être lui faire un peu de sous, bah ouais, tu ouais. vois mais, euh, et ça vous, a, vous avez été surpris de ça Ah oui, j'étais sûr. Non, que, non, parce que c'est, c'est un morceau que quand, quand on le faisait, on jouait, tu vois, les gens adoraient. Oui. Et après, on n'a plus de nouvelles. Ouais, une bonne, euh, ah, oui, ah oui, ah oui, ah oui, franchement, c'est un plaisir. Ouais, c'est ouais. un plaisir. Il te parle l'arabe vraiment classique, le français parfait, avec des phrases extraordinaires. Ouais. Venez, que Dieu s'en aille. Nordine says, frankly, Fadoul was a pleasure. He spoke classical Arabic and perfect French, and the way he phrased things was extraordinary. May God bless his soul. In this next story, producer Alex Atak stumbled upon a musical mystery in its own rights around this song. It's called the Lahme song. I've had this song in my head for literally months now. At least a few times a week, it'll pop up out of nowhere, and I'll just find myself whistling it or mumbling the lyrics to myself. I think it's stuck there for good. And it's all because of this guy. My name is Thanks Joey. I am a music producer, uh, an audio engineer. I'm based out of Los Angeles, California. He's used that stage name, Thanks Joey, uh, since he was about 13 or 14. He got it from a bumper sticker on the back of a tow truck he saw on the motorway one day. And it kind of stuck. Is it is it Thanks Joey always or just Joey? Oh, no, no, it's Joey or, you know, depending on from what <laughs> when you knew me, if, you, if you're an old time friend, it's Joe. Joey, Jay, you know, it's whatever makes you comfortable. Joey's Syrian-American. His parents moved to the U.S. from Damascus, and he lived in Brooklyn, New York, when he was young. 
And then he moved down to Orlando in Florida, which is where he spent most of his childhood. So when did music come into your life? How, how did music come into your life? My grandfather, uh, his name is Yusuf Kassab, uh, my mother's dad, is a musician, mm-hmm. classical Arab uh, musician. So he's um, into like the older Arabic stuff like Um Kaltoum and Muhammad Abdul Wahab and stuff like that. And so he's, he's you know, a master Oud musician and um, he's always had like instruments around around he'd always get me like little toy pianos or you know little toy guitars or stuff like that like it was always a thing and then when i when i got a little bit older you know growing up in new york my grand my uncles would just be playing like biggie and jay-z and like east coast new york hip-hop music and so i started listening to a lot of hip-hop music for me it was like oh i love the I love how people sample in New York. I love the sampling aspect of hip hop, taking something old and creating something new out of it, right? The re- recontextualization of music. That was mind blowing to me. And next thing you know, you know, I'm 13, 14 years old and started trying to make it myself. And I would just mimic uh, beats that I loved. At the time, a, a big one of the f- songs that I heard was Kanye West's first record that he released, Through the Wire. I found that record downloading music illegally on Kazaa or LimeWire or whatever. <laughs> Kazaa and LimeWire were these uh, music sharing platforms in the early 2000s. And I think they were probably the most popular way of listening to music before Apple and Spotify came along. Oh my God, are you kidding? I, I, every single, I had... My library was ridiculous. I've broken so many copyright laws. It's insane. So that was my, you know, that's where I would download all these oldies and I would throw them in Fruity Loops and I would make beats out of them. And man, it was so trash. But he started to get better at it. And before long, it got to the point where he was selling his CDs in school. And it was a whole operation, man. And I was doing it all from my parents' house. And we would sell these CDs on campus and we sold maybe 500 copies of our CD. Oh, so like people were into it. It was like popular. People were into it. It was popular at the time. And it was crazy because we had maybe 2000, about maybe 2000 kids at our high school. It was a pretty large high school. And one of the people he quickly became friends with was this guy called Faras. He was a DJ as well. And they bonded over music and became close friends quickly. Joey showed me a picture of them from the time. It's hilarious because we're dressed in like mafia suits. It was it was Halloween. So, I mean, check this out. It's a picture of uh, Joey and Faraz and their friend Nico in these like oversized mafia outfits posing for the camera. They're probably about 15 years old. <laughs> we look like a bunch of thugs hanging out in a Denny's restaurant at 5 a.m. Anyway, these three quickly became close friends. And so we were in this world where we were kind of like creating music and playing music and throwing parties together senior year of high school. And one morning I get this call from for us and <laughs> he's like, hey, I have an idea for a song I want to do about Lahme." Can me and Tarek, his brother Tarek Shruru, can me and Tarek come over and record? And I said, yeah, sure. Come on, come on by. So they come over this morning and <laughs> the setup is in my bedroom, right? So 
I have my bed over here and you know I have my little studio set up small desk and whatever in the corner and um for us tells me you know open up uh, fruity loops real quick this is my idea for the song right this is how fast it should be um you know so i go ahead and i plug in all of the 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 patterns for the drums and whatever have you and he starts singing me to, <laughs> he starts writing out i give him a notebook and he starts writing out the lyrics to the Ahmed song he gets about like halfway through his verse written on on the paper and i said okay are you guys ready to record he's like all right let's go and so they started recording their their verses record for us first hilarious i'm cracking up i can't even you know I, i'm thinking this is the dumbest thing i've ever done in my life and um we did the record i i did a quick bounce i burned it to cd so they can listen to it in the car said peace see you guys later and then i decided to upload it to my myspace this was november 15th 2005 Joey put it up on MySpace under the name of their quote-unquote production company at the time, Top Notch Records. And after that, they kind of forgot about it until a few months later. I, I remember Faraz coming over to my house and he, I remember he was in such a crazy hurry. He, he pulled up in the car and jumped out and came inside. It was like, there's a video on YouTube with our song. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he looks it up. And sure enough, it's this video that was posted by these two guys from UCLA that heard the song and created a whole music video to it. The video was made by these two guys, University of California, Los Angeles students, filming on one of those small point and shoot cameras from the 2000s that had video mode. In it, they're miming the words, cooking dinner, driving around while eating a steak. It looks like it was cut together in probably whatever editing software came pre-installed on home computers at the time. But it had a lot of views, like hundreds of thousands of views. He's like, man, somebody just hit me up. You know, one of my cousins called me and asked me if, I, if it was me on this song because they had heard a ringtone in Australia of the song. And so somehow, someway, somebody had taken the song off my MySpace. They had ripped it off my MySpace and it just took a life of its own. That's when we, we realized like, oh, shit it blew up. It was all over the internet, getting hundreds of thousands of views and likes and comments and shares. And this was really before things went viral in the way they do today. So it wasn't like a kind of passing trend for a day and then it was forgotten. The momentum kept on building with like new people uploading new videos of themselves dancing to it or singing to it. It got really big. I wish I knew it, like exactly what it was that drew people to it. I was curious about the same thing too. So I asked my colleague, Bella Ibrahim. She's Cunning Culture's marketing director. I, okay, I actually have t a hard time remembering the first time I heard it because it feels like it was always there. Okay. Bella is Egyptian-American, grew up in Virginia. Like, it's just something that I feel like I remember in middle school and high school was always something my friends would sing. Like, we would just, 
you would hear that song anytime we were going to Chipotle or like someone's parents were grilling up like kebab or kofta or something. It was like someone would just sort of be humming that song in the background. Bella told me that part of the reason that this song took off in the way it did was because of how niche it was. It was in English, uh, borrowed from many of the tropes that you saw in American spoof music that was popular at the time, people like Weird Al Yankovic. But then at the same time, it was obviously written by Arab Americans and used Arabic words and phrases. So I think it was just one of those things where it felt like it was written for us. And it was one of the first times I saw that, at least. Like, it just felt very specific to being Egyptian-American and not necessarily just Egyptian or just American. So these two UCLA guys whose video popularized the song, they got around half a million views. And Joey actually didn't have a problem with that. At the time, in a way, he was sort of flattered. You went and literally, like, borrowed your mom's camera to be able to create a video and then somehow stitched it together on your computer and then uploaded it to YouTube. Like, good for you, man. That's great. I, lo- I love that. I lo- that's some initiative right there. But they didn't credit him. So when he saw the video, he reached out to them just to ask that they put his and Firas and Tarek's name on it somewhere. And they responded immediately saying, yo, so sorry, we didn't know it was you. We'll give you credit in the, de- in the description. And so in the description, they put, by the way, this song wasn't created by the two thugs in the video. It's actually two brothers from Orlando, Florida. But then this other channel, the username was Aladdin88, uploaded it as well without crediting Joey. And then that video got hundreds of thousands, possibly over a million views, way more than the UCLA guy's video. For context, some of the most popular videos on YouTube that year got between 2 million and about 4 million views. So the Lahme song wasn't quite uh, in that category, but it was definitely up there. But by this point, the train had fully left the station without them. Their song was an internet hit, but there was basically nothing they could do to wrangle back ownership of it. And we felt, I think, helpless at the time because we didn't know how to get a grip on it. We didn't know what to do. We just knew this this thing blew up. We made it. People in our community know about it. And well, let's go. Let's move on with our lives. Right. That was it. I mean, what I guess there's nothing you can do. But did you did you did it matter to you at the time that that it was being taken and you weren't getting credit for it? Absolutely, it did. And it was it was such a weird feeling, and 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 the feeling persisted for years. And it was and it was to the point where I didn't even, I didn't want to play it. I didn't want to hear other people play it. I didn't. You know, it was kind of like, oh, I missed out on something. Because for a young guy like Joey, who was trying to make it as a music producer, being able to hold up this thing that he'd made that got on all of this attention, uh, even if it was just like a jokey song that wasn't meant to be a hit, that could have actually been a really good stepping stone for him early on in his career. If people had known who it was, you know, maybe we, they would have been able to get shows, we would have been able to tour, we would have been able to take the song and reach even more people. For years afterwards, he told me that it stuck in the back of his mind. It was just one of those frustrating things that we all like have from our past that we just wish had gone a bit differently, especially because of this thing that kept happening even years later in his 20s and 30s. He'd be talking to someone new, and Joey was a full-time music producer by this point, but they often wouldn't have heard of the music he'd made or the music that he was proud of. And then he'd mention the Lahme song. You know, then I'll drop the like, oh yeah, you know the Lahme song? They'll be like, yeah, the Lahme song is amazing! I'm like, yeah, I made that. And then the perspective would just be like, my, you know what I'm saying? Everything would just change. 
by now we're in the uh, early 2010s and it seemed like the song was kind of over the other side of the hill. People who listened to it when they were kids weren't kids anymore. And the Aladdin 88 video was kind of, uh, it was kind of like living in YouTube obscurity. It didn't get that much attention anymore. But then the Janoskians happened. Yes, the Janoskians. This is a whole situation. Hey guys, we're the Janoskians. These guys are from Melbourne, Australia. Well, Aussie YouTube sensations, the Janoskians. It's a group of guys. I think it was five guys. Uh, three of them are brothers. Twins Jay and Luke Brooks, big brother Bo, and mates James and Daniel. They're pranksters, I believe. Like they make videos of themselves in public, kind of like pranking people, playing jokes on people. Oh, that's yogurt. What? You're good. Wait, no, smile again. I would describe their genre as basically super obnoxious, immature high school humor. Their bread and butter is the kind of videos where they'll knock on a stranger's door and like ask them dumb questions, or they'll stand in the middle of a shopping mall and just start screaming. And in 2012, somehow they came across the Lahme song on YouTube and made their own video for it. It starts with them in like goofy costumes dancing in the middle of the road. A car comes along trying to get past them. They ignore it. And this video started raking in hundreds of thousands of views very quickly. But again, no mention of Joey or Firas in the comments. I mean, we're sitting back here looking at all of this shit and we're like, damn, man, these guys are all making videos and they're taking our song and it's getting millions and millions of views. And it, it, it bugged us. Because the Janoskian's music video took off in a bigger way than any of the previous videos. And I think it's fair to say that it became a pretty significant part of their early YouTube success. And I think that song helped them take their um, YouTube channel, which was their primary like focus, to the next level, where they were able to secure a deal. I, I believe it was with Sony or some major record label. Um, we were fortunate enough to have a fan base out of the pranking, and Sony saw that, and they saw the opportunity that we had, and. We're obviously going to take it with both hands when they did approach us, so we did. And yeah, and then they started creating music, um, started creating music for film. I think they got a couple songs in some films. and um, They have a Netflix documentary about them. Oh my gosh, man. If you want us to talk about the Janoskians, it's a really long story. The best place to start will probably be in the very beginning. I don't think it's fair to say that this video is what made the Janoskians. They had other more popular videos and a lot of other less popular videos. But whether they meant to or not, the song basically became theirs. Whenever you would Google Lahme song, the only thing that came up was the Janoskians. And their video to the song on YouTube had almost 2.5 million views. And I think for so, for, you know, so many years that have gone by, it wasn't necessarily an issue because... The only place that the song existed was on YouTube and none of the, the YouTube accounts had any ads on any of the videos. But th the real issue started when maybe three, last month, I think, I had Googled the Lahme song. Every once in a while, I would just Google it and see what's going on. Kind of like a, kind of like a, do you, do you do that in a sort of like jealous, like old man sitting at the end of the bar, like look what I could have done way or in a, in a kind of curious way? I hate to admit that you're spot on, hundred <laughs> percent. But that's that that is. I'm not gonna lie. That's the truth. I I'm yeah. sitting here like, God damn it, those gosh darn kids taking my music. Yeah, that's that's me. 
So one day a few months ago, he was Googling the song, checking out how many views it had. And for the first time, he noticed something. These guys, the Janoskins, were uh, playing ads. They had ads on the video. Oh. And so, as you know, if you have ads on a YouTube video, it's generating money. And so that's when it started becoming an issue for us, when other people were profiting off of our work, no matter how old the song is. Whatever they were profiting, even if they had made $3, you know, that's that $3 should be split up me was split up between me and the two other guys. I should have a dollar. I need that dollar. <laughs> so when he saw that the Janoskians were running ads on their videos of his song, Joey reached out to them. Uh, I sent through um, Daniel Skip. I think his name is Daniel Sahyuni. Um, I think he's known as Skip. I, I saw that he had an email in his Instagram, and so I reached out via email to him. And then within an hour, uh, I got an Instagram message from him. He had followed me and DM'd me, and he basically said, um, dude, we'll take down the video. And he said, we never made any money on the song. We've never profited off of it. We could never profit off it. And I said, well, you're running ads. And he said, let me check. And so I sent him with screenshot of a hulu ad playing on the video uh, and he said i don't have access to the youtube i don't speak with the others i mean if we did make anything it wouldn't be anything major bro so i can help i can't help you but i'll tell them to take it down they took it down shortly after that but they never got back to joey when he asked them to see how much money they'd made from his song but you know, I don't know. At the end of the day, for me, it's it's really principle. You know, I'd, I'd yeah. like to I'd like to know, and I think I, the 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 two brothers, Tarek and Faraz, would also, you know, appreciate yeah. knowing. And at least we haven't gotten the accounting. I would love to see the accounting and see how that much was made. Yeah, would yeah. would love to see what two and a half million views on YouTube gets you. I was curious too. So first they reached out to every member of the Janoskians individually through their email and social media, as well as their management to ask if they talked to me for the story. In the end, no one got back to me. And then I reached out to Google, uh, who own YouTube. A representative there told me that she couldn't tell me how much money a creator might have made in ad revenue from one single video. Only the creator themselves can tell you that, she said. She also couldn't tell me what the average uh, ad revenue for a video with 2.5 million views would be. She said it depends on where the views were coming from and who was advertising on the video. I was starting to realize that ad revenue is a closely guarded secret in the YouTube world. So I started wading through this very specific type of YouTube video. These are the videos where uh, people share how much money they made in ad revenue on YouTube from particular videos. I watched tons of these and they weren't very helpful in coming to a specific number. But they said that for a video with about 2.5 million views, a YouTuber could make anywhere between $2,000 and $18,000 in ad revenue. But as I said, the only people who could actually say how much money the Janoskians made from their Lachme song video would be the Janoskians. Anyway, since they'd taken their video down, Joey re-released the Lachme song under his own name. And a lot of the reaction was from people who'd heard the song when they were a teenager, but had no idea that Joey was the person behind it. And now it's having kind of a second life in places like TikTok and Instagram. And sure enough, it's like you're, I'm watching these TikTok videos and it's a younger generation, man, that is now discovering it. That is now, that maybe they had listened to it when they were, you know, 
five, six, seven years old, 10 years old, and are just now coming back in their 20s, listening to it again and bubbling on TikTok. Do you know what this makes me think of? Huh? Kazaa. Exactly. Just a different generation. Just a different generation. Exactly. And so now we're on the other side of it, trying to <laughs> yeah. trying to control the, the thing. It's like yeah. it's really karma if you think about it. Yeah. All yeah, of yeah. the all of the albums that we pirated, it's coming to bite us back in the ass. <laughs> but I think for Joey now, um, like he's a he's a successful music producer. He doesn't need the recognition that might have come with the Lachme song. Um, but I think for him, like the main kind of thing that he's taking away from this is like revisiting this song and going back and thinking about this period of time uh, from his childhood, like over a decade ago. I think it sort of like helped him sort of remember why he got into music in the first place. And, and I th- and that's the most important thing, man, is to be able to, you know, share that laughter. For me, that's what it is. It's It's being able to just be ourselves and have fun and make something for you know the homies around us to like have a quick laugh or whatever and uh for it to just take off and 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 you know be shared by so many it's i think we've i've never expected to happen and um i'm grateful for it i think that's the the most important thing And um, the funniest part to all of this is I've been a vegetarian since 2008. So, <laughs> so it's been so 12, yeah, 12 years. years. So you, so you kind of don't love lachme anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I don't love lachme anymore. <laughs> The truth is out. Yeah, that's, that's the exclusive. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network, which means we have many more shows in English and in Arabic that, honestly, I think you'd love. So to find out more, visit kerningcultures.com, that's Kerning with a K, or search Kerning Cultures Network on your podcast app, and you'll see all our shows pop up. This episode was written and produced by Alex Atak and me, Dana Balut, with editing supports from Zaina Duwaydar, and Nadine Shakir. Sound design by Alex Atak and Mohamed Khrezat. Bella Ibrahim is our marketing manager. Special thanks to Nahida Tarbawi. Thank you to Roger Bandali, Yanis Sturz, Norina Buda, and Joey Hamawi. You can listen to Fadu's record at Yanis's website, habibifunkrecords.bankhab.com, or just by looking for Habibi Funk on Apple Music or Spotify. And the full re-release of the Lahmi song is on Spotify and on YouTube, returned to its rightful owners. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. <laughs>